Hi, this is Dan Cohen, pediatrician and parent. Uh, this is Is That Normal? And today we're going to be talking about a topic that's probably one of the most hotly debated and important topics in the world today, let alone just pediatrics, which is vaccines and vaccine hesitancy. And as we typically have been doing, we're trying to change perspectives. So in the last two episodes, we've, we've had pediatricians and doctors. Talking. Today, I'm going to be talking to a fellow parent. So... Rebecca, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us about your family and... Sure. Hi, everybody. My name is Rebecca. I am the director of marketing here at WestMed. Uh, I'm also a new parent, so I have a new job. Um, I have a six-month-old baby boy. Congratulations. Thank you. So I'm just entering this world for the first time, but I think a lot of people have had vaccines on their mind lately, so it's going to be a really interesting topic to talk about you know, the normal vaccines that kids have been getting for years and years, and then kind of some of the new ones that I'm sure everyone is very well aware of. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so we'll talk about that a little bit. Perfect. So um, I like to interject in the fact that I'm also a parent. I have three kids. My two stepkids are 20 and 18. My son's 13. Um, and uh, they are all fully vaccinated, as would be the want. But I'm a pediatrician. You'd expect that. So... There's been a lot of discussion in the last few years about vaccine hesitancy. And uh, a recent article in Pediatrics written by uh, Paul Offit, who's a, a pediatric infectious disease expert from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, brought up that about 85% of pediatricians sooner or later on an almost daily basis are going to be hearing from a parent about their concerns about vaccines. Being a new parent, Rebecca, what are your concerns? Yeah, so I... I think even before, you know, COVID was a thing, I was thinking about when I became a parent, I heard, I was reading and heard a lot about, especially being in this field, uh, about different types of vaccine schedules and how people um, think about vaccines. And, you know, some people are against vaccines altogether. So I think it was really important for me as I when I was pregnant and as I was kind of entering the world of parenthood to do my own research about vaccines and really look at the literature and talk to health experts who I'm lucky enough to have access at my fingertips right. <laughs> um, about vaccines. So there are a lot of concerns, of course, as a new parent about anything that you're giving for the first time. But, um, you know, you worry about the immediate side effects and especially when you have a newborn who's not sleeping already, you know, you worry that maybe is this going to make it worse? Is my baby going to be uncomfortable or have a fever? Um, are there any long-term side effects? Of course, those are the things that you just research generally. I would say every parent probably does. Exactly. Vaccines are like the third greatest invention in all of medicine. It's soap, the toilet, and vaccines. And there's nothing that saved more lives than that. But as a, as a parent, I have to kind of be em empathetic towards what the other parent is being fearful of. One of the things you brought up, Rebecca, is that you want to do your own research. And this is probably one of the most fraught areas because you want your, you know, I think there was uh, some furniture company back in the day that said an educated consumer is our best customer. We want people to look this stuff up, but where do you look it up? What questions are out there? And the hardest thing is that, we were trained for years in school of how to read an article and how to find the data and what data is good. We live in a world where the anecdote is much more powerful than any data. You know, I, I always use the analogy of you could tell the truth your entire life. And if you lie once, they call you a liar. 
So all it takes is one fearful story and we have a lot of work to do to regain the trust. So with your new child, what's your child's name, by the way? Wesley. Wesley. So with Wesley, if he's coming in or she's coming in to get the shots, what, what's your first concern? Yeah. So, and to talk a little bit about your point you were making about where to get the information, I know I struggled with that completely because the people that I followed on Instagram or the blogs I read when I was pregnant about things to expect and how to pack a hospital bag and all of those important things, maybe aren't the same people I would follow for advice on these types of things. Exactly. So it is a struggle trying to understand really what's the right source for you to look at. So there's some good sources to start off with, and then I'll go, we'll, we'll kind of do this backwards. So the, the sources to look for, which is kind of like the, the footnotes at the end of the article, the American Academy of Pediatrics has a great site called Healthy Children. The easiest one for me to remember is there's a really good website called immunize.org, which has tons of information, a lot of frequently asked questions, and probably one of the most powerful tools that any pediatrician has. But they actually have pictures of the diseases that were out there. And I think that's one of the limitations is that we have such an effective tool that people don't even remember these diseases. And they may say, oh yeah, sure we do. But I hesitate to have a parent tell me what diphtheria looks like. Haemophilus influenza type B, polio. I remember there was this Jimmy Kimmel episode where they had a group of pediatricians from California and this guy was wearing a shirt go, you remember that time your kid had polio? No, you're welcome. You know, and like just kind of moving on. These diseases, you don't even see them anymore. Right. So how is a parent supposed to be afraid of something they don't even know? Right. Where they know they're going to bring their child in, have a small metal rod inserted into their little child's leg, who's going to cry, which they hate their crying oh, anyway. I know. So there's an instant negative feedback to vaccines let alone those other sources. So as I said, immunize.org and the American Academy of Pediatrics are two quick ones. The CDC is replete with tons of knowledge as far as good sources to go to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, those are really good tips. I'll remember that (laughs) for sure. Um, So I guess some of the questions that I had when I was doing research are the vaccine schedule in general, but also is that what I need to follow? Yeah. Do do I follow a different schedule? Who decides that? That's How do perfect. I decide that? So the that's one of the things that comes up all the time is usually we have parents come in and if they're hesitant with vaccines, they always love to tell me that they're not against vaccines. Like they believe in vaccines, like they're not like a unicorn or something like that. And I'm like, that's fantastic. They go, yeah, but I, I just only want to do one today. And so why does that happen? And they're not alone in this. There's actually doctors out there, or at least a group of two famous doctors who have written alternate schedules. What I would tell them is the reason the vaccines are done in this way is that it is the safest, most effective way that has ever been studied to protect their child from diseases that can kill them. That's how these things were brought up. Now, it sounds really scary. I'm using the word death with a child. That's ridiculous. But These other ways of doing it have not been studied. They were done by doctors who, this is my own feeling, is that they were too lazy to really talk about the vaccines and go through the data because that's a long conversation to have. I mean, we have a little bit of time here. We'll talk for about 20 minutes, but imagine in a room in a pressured situation where you have people behind them and they say, well, I really want to do just one today. I would tell them that, you know, choosing to do those in that way 
is not a safer way. You have more visits to the doctor's office where, by the way, there's a bunch of sick kids. There's a more of a chance of mixing up the scheduling where there has to be certain intervals that have been tested over decades and they were done to maximize the immunologic response. So doing these other schedules, although it feels safe for the parent, the analogy I always use is, imagine you're driving your car in the Taconic. We all know the, the conic around here is <laughs> yes. kind of an unsafe. Treacherous. <laughs> it's, it's the Autobahn of New York. And you wanted to drive your car 20 miles an hour because you feel like you have more control. So if you drive slower, you have more control, right? But what happens if you drive your car 20 on the Taconic? Not just do other people get upset, you get rear-ended, other people die, and you get into accidents. It's not the right way to do it. So the, the studies were done by a group of very trained pediatricians, epidemiologists, immunologists that work for the American Academy of Pediatrics, something called the ACIP, which is the American, Co American College of Immunization Practices and the CDC, and studied over decades. We want the kids to be protected as much as you do. Not not more because it's your child, but we want that to be done safely. Um, and that's how those schedules come around. And any deviation from it is really just an act of trying to make the parent feel more comfortable. Yeah, so I, I, I'll play the devil's advocate yeah. parent here who from what I've seen or, you know, the what's being talked about on platforms across social media today, the three main reasons why people try to change, change up the it. schedule is one to your point control. They are hoping that if they're only doing one at a time, they can see what the reaction is to that one. Right. And then, you know, if the reaction's okay, yep. then they'll move on, which is, and your point here is you're saying that that's not been necessarily tested effectively over decades. Correct. I mean, really what they found, a lot of parents are like, it's just too much. That's why they don't want to do it by the schedule, because with the schedule currently, at two months old, it's usually two injections, if not more, because one's a combination and a drop. Like at WestMed, we have a combination vaccine called Pentacel, Penta being five things, and Prevnar, which is strep pneumonia, and something called rotavirus. And this is the typical schedule. They're like, that's so much. If you actually go back 25, 30 years ago, we were protecting against eight diseases against with children. We now protect against 14. If you go into how many antigens or how many products were in those eight vaccines, it was 3,000 different antigens. We're now down to 150. It is a lot less than it used to be. Now people go, well, but it's still a lot. They're, they're little immune systems. Everything's little. Their little immune systems can't handle. I'm like, have you ever seen a kid crawl around on the floor? Where do they put their hands? Your immune system is meant to multitask. Yeah. In fact, there are some people who believe something called the hygiene hypothesis in the fact that we're protecting our kids almost too much. And that's why we're having increased things like allergies and asthma and all these things. But that hasn't really come to bear. But the, the idea is the immune system is meant to work this way. So there's no problem with getting multiple vaccines at the same time. Yeah, and I... I know for a fact that that uh, that hygiene hypothesis is correct <laughs> in, my, in my own world because the amount of times that my dog has stolen my son's pacifier they share and then, it. Yeah. yeah, they basically share. It's disgusting. Yeah, exactly. But, but that's where we're at. But we live. But we live. Yeah, yes, totally. And he's you know knocking wood. He's pretty good. Um, so I would say another reason that a lot of people, not just parents, but are hesitant for 
you know, naturalists or whatever, yeah. is the preservatives in yep. the vaccines. Yep. So can you talk a little bit about Absolutely. that? Absolutely. So ingredients come to be a big thing. So thimerosal is the famous one. Thimerosal is a mercury-based preservative. And the reason it existed, and I say exist dead with a past tense on that, is that when you had multiple doses in one vial, you need to put a preservative in there. Otherwise, that stuff will go bad. You keep things in your refrigerator to keep them for a long time. If, if you leave it out there, you can't drink the milk after a month. So these thimerosal was a preservative. The fear of it was that it, thimerosal is a mercury-based preservative. And as we all know, mer mercury is a neurotoxin. The form of mercury that's in thimerosal is not as bioavailable, actually it gets cleared much more quickly and hasn't been shown to cause the same problems as methylmercury, which is the one that's found in fish and naturally and all that. But more important than that, outside of multi-dose vials, which only exists for flu vaccines really in kids, kids' vaccines don't have thimerosal, not since 2001. That's something that's continually put out there even though it was never proven to cause autism, which is what they were worried about. It was never proven to cause any other problems with the, the thimerosal that was in there. And yet the government and the, the companies said, you know what, just get it out. We'll put single dose vials rather than multi-dose vials. So the, the only time if a parent is really concerned about thimerosal is during flu shot season for themselves, for adults, not for kids. Okay, great. That's really good to know. I had no idea that they changed the you know, the makeup genetically of what yeah, was in the vial. I mean, that's, and the thing about that, that happened 19 years ago. Wow. But it's still one of the most common questions we deal with. It definitely is. Yeah. yeah. I know I asked my pediatrician. The other one that some people put out there, after mercury was taken out, they're like, well, what about all the aluminum? You know, aluminum is used as an adjuvant, which means it boosts the response so you have a better immune response. So it's an important aspect of that. But they're like, well, aluminum causes Alzheimer's, doesn't it? Well, my favorite little fact about that is formula has about eight times the amount of aluminum as vaccines. Breast milk has about two to three times the amount of aluminum as vaccines. So this whole thing about aluminum being such a big dose at a little time, is craziness. It's again, it's just a way of kind of giving people the idea that you're caring for their child by telling them what they should be fearful of. Mm -hmm. When in fact, what they should be fearful of are these diseases we've all forgot. I mean, one of the things to me that's the hardest thing for a parent is that when a parent comes in for a vaccine, and this especially goes for like newer vaccines like COVID and things like that, is that to me, the reason they really don't want to do it, they hide it in the fact of the data or the lack of information, but it's the fact that they blame, they'll blame themselves for making that choice. And if you look at the United States, we are the most optimistic country in the world, but we don't like being told what to do. And if you look at like the celebrities who really don't want to get vaccines, if you look at their arguments, the vast majority of their arguments are, I'm not letting the government put that into my kid. And as a parent, when you're choosing to do something, if your child had a bad effect, the only person you have to blame is yourself. And yet if your child got that disease, somehow that distances you from the problem. And because you don't see these diseases, you make that choice of, I'm making the choice of making my child cry today and potentially having a side effect that Aunt Susie's Uncle Bob's dog's friend had, even though it was like a one in a million chance 
but they don't want to take that risk. And yeah. that's where they want to hold back. They want to slow the car down. They want to spread things out because at least then they're caring for their child. Yeah, and then, it, you know, God forbid something, you know, there is a reaction to the vaccine. Very rare, of course, yes. but it's your fault. Yes, that's and that's, to me, I think if people were being honest with themselves, that's probably the greatest hesitancy. Yeah. Is that, I did that. I took that medicine. I made that choice. I did that thing. Right. But I would tell them if you're going into a situation where you're questioning stuff, you want to talk to someone you trust. Yeah. When you go to buy a car, you know, you may be told that car has the best braking system ever invented. It's right. brand new. It's it, but you would choose that car because a brand new, super good braking system would protect your family. Mm-hmm. But you're doing that because you trust the person giving that to yeah. you. And that yeah. guy's selling you something. Right. Doctors aren't selling vaccines. No, no. And so I would say that if you really trust your pediatrician to listen to the way they say it, ask the questions. If you have, like in Westmed, we have a way of emailing. Email your questions ahead of time. Yeah. Take the time. We'll be happy to talk about it. So immediate versus long-term well, effects. Yes. So the the immediate effects, I always give this line, um, probably the, the actor in me or whatever, when I say to a parent, I go, and the most common side effects you're going to see with your child are? Dramatic pause. And I want them to kind of go, oh, fever. Oh, this. I go, no, nothing. 85% of the time, absolutely nothing happens. And that's for the everyday vaccine Virtually virtually all of them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's including the fact that you're getting multiple at once. So it's really important for them to know that there are potential effects. And when you get the VIS form, which is vaccine information sheet, which you get at every visit, it's going to list all the vast majority of the side effects, especially the common ones. About 10 to 15% of kids will be cranky. About 5% will get fever and it's usually low grade, but it could be a real fever. And there are chances for other side effects from anything. You could take Tylenol and get a a side Mm -hmm. effect. But these vaccines, again, are the best way of protecting your child from things where if you look back just, I think it was eight to 10 years ago, there was a whooping cough outbreak. Mm-hmm. Kids die of whooping cough. Mm-hmm. Adults have an annoying cough. Yeah, so, and sometimes a really serious cough that's for right. adults. That's right. <laughs> so actually, my mom was just telling me a story the other day about her father who had whooping cough in his 40s. Yeah. He was really ill, yeah. like really sick. No, you're, it's a it's a month of coughing, you yeah. know, but babies can actually stop breathing, which yeah. is the, it's horrible. that kind of thing that you just don't see or like when measles, measles was gone almost in the United States at 2000 and then suddenly it came back because people weren't vaccinating. So Okay, great. So maybe let's chat again about the COVID vaccine sure. where we kind of Broach the topic. Yeah. So that's that's something that I know a lot of people are thinking a lot about as parents. There's a lot of hesitancy, which we addressed already. So the, the COVID vaccine is the perfect metaphor, and it's actually kind of a crucible for all the vaccine hesitancy. It's a fact that it was created atypically, and not wrongly, but atypically, but it went through the right studies, but it went through the studies in, when I say in accelerated, it's actually, the better term is a facilitated fashion. So when a vaccine's created, it goes through a three-step process before the FDA can even approve it or give emergency authorization. The first step is you study hundreds of people to see if there's anything and is it effective. When that works, you then you have to make some more money, get to the second stage, which are thousands of people to get the dosing down and to see other effects. And they were kind of monitoring it. Then it goes to the third stage of study where there's tens of thousands of people who are studied. And actually, 
the vaccines for COVID, especially like Pfizer and Moderna, were studied up to 40,000 people, which is a large group of people. The reason why it seems so fast is that the financial burden was taken away and they were able to layer these three things. They did those three parts simultaneously knowing that if it failed at any point, the whole study was, was shot where usually you don't go to the next step until you succeed with the first. They also were producing the product while they were doing these studies, just in case it worked, they could roll it out right Kind of hedging their bets there. Well, they're hedging their bets in the fact that they could get it out, but they're also taking a real bet that they may have had to throw out hundreds of millions of doses. Big risk, but also um, they understood, I guess, the 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 whole world necessity. Yeah, that's right. For sure. So when that all came out, you now have all this ambiguity. And where are people going to get their information from? The media loves a fear story. And it's not, I'm not blaming the media. They have to look through things, but they also want people to look at their titles. And that goes back to a corollary of when the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine was told that it caused autism. Based on a study of 12 kids who in the, in the, uh, since the study came out in 1998, 12 kids of which six already had autism. It was a really, it wasn't even a study about that, but it was such a poorly done study by this guy, Andrew Wakefield in Britain. They removed it from the journal, but because it was said, that's it. The whole world now thinks MMR causes autism. Yeah. And it's taken decades for us to catch up. Well, COVID now had the the COVID vaccine phenomenon was it causes problems with fertility. It causes problems with growth. It causes problems with things that, why would people even think that? Mm -hmm. And if you look into the literature, just like with Wakefield's study, there was a group of two guys in Europe who brought up that the COVID vaccine, the Pfizer Moderna one, the mRNAs, had a protein that was similar to a protein in the uterus. That's it. Not that it caused anything, not that it's ever been shown. And actually, it's been given to 100,000 pregnant women without any problems. Yeah. It's that fear was all that it took. And now you have all the other kind of political, social ramifications for that. So people doubt them, doubt the issue. Um, they even doubted the disease, which boggles me. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people argue, you know, about the when I was pregnant, COVID was around. A lot of people argue that. You know, you can't eat deli meat when you're pregnant, but right. you can you but can you, get the vaccine. Right. But then you think about it, you get the flu vaccine when you're pregnant. So and the tetanus you know. and the, right. the you know the Tdap. Protect, Tdap. Yep. Yeah. So yep. There's very few vaccines you can't get when you're pregnant. There are a couple, you know, but yeah. um, but the COVID one wasn't one. Right. But I, you know, the I the thing there is, as a pediatrician, you cannot just say yes, do it. Like when people ask me before it came out, are you going to get the COVID vaccine? I said, I have to see the information of first. Of course, right. You know, you have. we were trained to read that data. Yeah. And I told everybody, if I read that data and it looks good to me and I see Dr. Fauci get it, you can stick it in my eye. I'll, <laughs> right. I'll be fine with whatever you do because right. this, the fear that we all had going out on a daily basis. I had days where I had nine or 10 kids with COVID in my office. Yeah. Not questionable COVID, tested positive COVID. And we were being exposed to these people. So- to me, whether to get it for your kids, when the kids don't get as sick, that's what they all kind of go back right, on. Right. But the studies right now down to 12 have been very effective. They're very safe. The 12-year-old, the 16-year-old has that myocarditis thing that, again, hit the press. Mm-hmm. But all these things with these more long-term problems or the heart problems, when you look into the data, you'll find that it is much, much safer to get that vaccine 
than to get the disease, mm-hmm. which is another one you had brought up the naturalistic idea. Yeah. Isn't it better to get the disease than to get the right. vaccine? Right. The answer to that is no, it is not. Good. Will you have longer protection? That's a debatable topic. And with some things, maybe, but it's definitely not safer. Mm-hmm. You know, chicken pox vaccine, people are always like, well, I had chicken pox when I was in third grade. Mm-hmm. Thousands of people, thousands die a year from chicken pox with, and kids, and it can have very bad ramifications. And now we barely know what it looks like. Right. Yeah. So. I was like the last group of yeah. kids that had chicken pox, <laughs> I think. I was right on the cusp. But um, yeah, so I think you were talking a little bit about how they're doing studies in, and they've performed studies in, in this now younger age group. Yeah. What does that look like? So right now the studies have been, are being done down to even two in the, even the two to six month old group. Uh, Moderna has one called Kid Cove. Pfizer has something similar. My guess is that data is going to come out sometime. It's going to be collected by October. So somewhere around November, you're going to start hearing stuff for the kids 12 and under. Um, when a parent asks me, would I vaccinate my t- under 12 year old? I say the same thing I said before, which is I have to see the data. The other data looks good. If it looks good, I absolutely would. My 12 year old, my now 13, he turned 13 last week. My 12 year old son at the time is fully vaccinated. He got both. And after the second dose, this is a little atypical. He came to me the next day. He's like, aren't I supposed to feel sick after this or something? <laughs> like he had nothing. Yeah. So it's a hit or miss. I yeah, feel like it is. Even when I was vaccinated, I was just tired. Yeah. But I had no other. But some people have had horrible symptoms. Yeah, and course. that's that's the thing where you have a parent coming to you with a story. Mm-hmm. And one of the things in this podcast we really wanted to get across is how important stories are. Mm-hmm. So when you have someone who's vaccine hesitant in front of a pediatrician, it is really important, like we did in the beginning have you tell your concerns, you tell your story first, because maybe there was someone in their family that something happened to. Yeah. And even though the data is millions and millions and millions of people who have been safely vaccinated, and we're in a world where these diseases, I can name polio, tetanus, hepatitis B, haemophilus influenza, measles, diphtheria, which are diseases, nobody really knows what they even look like anymore, in the United States at least, but they're killing people worldwide. Even though that's the case, that one person's story may be the most important fact that they have. Yeah, totally. And so you want to kind of take that where it is. If there's a family member who had something happen after a vaccine, you can't just go, well, I don't think it was the vaccine. Because how do you know? But you want to hear the story, present the data, and help that person protect their child the best way you can. Yeah, that's a great way to coach parents through it because I know that would be really reassuring for me. Great. It's a big topic. I'm sure we'll probably hit on this again in another podcast at some point. Um, but to me, it is the most important topic. And just to kind of sum up, I think vaccines have this other role where we all want to protect our own child and our own family. Uh, but for a pediatrician, a vaccine is also a team sport. To have a good team, you want to train yourself and protect yourself the best you can. But the more people who train on your team, the better the outcome. And a fully vaccinated world is the only way we get rid of things. Uh, smallpox is gone. Polio was supposed to be gone and is almost gone, but every once in a while, some warlord in another country says it was causing HIV, and that anecdote, again, breaks down the cycle. With any luck, we'll get more people vaccinated from COVID so our kids can go to school next year unmasked. Uh, let's hope you know the variants are, are a real thing, but right now, places like New York are doing a pretty good job, so we'll stay optimistic. 
Um, again, this is, is that normal? This is Dan Cohen. Thank you, Rebecca, for your time. Thank you. And I hope Wesley gets vaccinated and stays healthy all year and forever. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so thanks again. And uh, we'll talk to you soon.